0: Hey everyone, I am trying to release the inaugural episode of Pandemic Ponderings. Um, I had recorded this on a previous thing, but got some advice that this device might be better. So I'm going to attempt to record it onto here now from my computer. We'll see how this works. Hey, it's Jamie. Welcome to the first, maybe the last episode of Pandemic Ponderings, which is really just my way of trying to keep my brain busy during this very, very weird time that we're in. So I wanted to consider doing these little podcasts with a different topic each time um, and just keep our brains going, give us something to think, learn, grow during this time that we're stuck inside. So today I want to start talking about urinary obstructions and cats and the reason for that is that these cats are at home living their best lives and all of a sudden their owners are at home too and the cats don't give a fuck about us. They are freaked out. They do not want us in their place. They are so used to us not being there. They want us gone and because of that stress they've all decided to block. So We are going to talk a little bit about FIC and urethral obstructions in cats today. So a lot of this information is coming from some different sources, one of them being a big Vet Clinics in North America paper on FIC from 2015, another one that was in JVIM in 2011 called idiopathic Cystitis in Domestic Cats. We're going to talk about some general information about FIC first, FIC and And really, that brings us to what are these definitions and what should we be calling it. The good news is you can call it whatever the hell you damn well please because no one really knows what it is or what it should be called. But really, fluted or feline lower urinary tract disease is encompassing all of our lower urinary tract signs in cats. FIC becomes more of a diagnosis of exclusion. So it's when we've ruled out other causes like stones or... Um, neoplasia of the urinary tract, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, There's also FUS, or feline urologic syndrome. You really can call this whatever you damn well please. It does not affect anything. It does not affect that we have no clue really what we're doing or treating, but I'll talk to you a bit about what we think is going on. So like I said, fluted, or FIC, remains a diagnosis of exclusion. It's a result of really complex interactions between the urinary bladder itself, the nervous system, the adrenal glands, our husbandry of cats, the environments that they live in, and it's complicated by the fact that FIC or fluid can be both acute or chronic. Abnormalities can be found in the lumen of the lower urinary tract, the lower urinary tract itself, or other organs that cause lower urinary tract dysfunction. And then we can have these comorbid conditions related to the gastrointestinal tract, the respiratory tract, or skin. CNS, the cardiovascular system, the immune system, those all have been recognized in cats with FIC. We don't know if it's a single disease or a syndrome with multiple causes, but some people have started to describe it as quote unquote, Pandora's syndrome. And this is three different things that are going on. You have signs of lower urinary tract dysfunction, clinical signs in the other organ systems, waxing and waning of clinical signs associated with stressful events, i.e. a global pandemic that we don't know how to control or fix, underground resolution of severity of clinical science following effective environmental enrichment. As far as kind of epidemiology and risk factors, there are some identifiable causes of lower urinary tract dysfunction like urolithiasis, urethral plugs, strictures, trauma, bacterial cystitis, and neoplasia. When no cause is found, then it should be classified as FIC or feline idiopathic cystitis. The big question that we have is that crystal urea does not seem to be on this list of identifiable causes. So it would seem to be that FIC includes those with crystals, but I feel like then we don't truly have an idiopathic cystitis. We have a struvite or a crystal urea that could be causing the cystitis. I am not an expert in FIC. I do not want to be an expert in FIC. I really don't want to even consider this any more than I already have while writing this topic. So we will follow what they consider as an inclusion into FIC, which is the presence of crystal urea. So how common is FIC as the cause of lower urinary tract signs? One study showed that in over 50% of non-obstructed cats with lower urinary tract signs, the cause is unknown. So therefore be classified as FIC. And the Vet Clinics in North America paper pooled about eight studies that had greater than 23,000 total cases of of lower urinary tract signs and found that FIC is the most common cause. The cats with FIC can present in different ways. They can present as a urinary obstruction, so an acute issue, about 15 to 20% of the time. They can present as non-obstructive diseases with acute self-limiting episodes in about 80 to 90% of the time. So those are the cats that come in straining to urinate but don't have a blocked bladder. They can also present with frequent recurring episodes or chronic persistent episodes in two to 15% of the time. Those are the ones that annoy the shit out of us when they come into the ER. The most common causes of fluid again, FIC is the most common about 55 to 57% of cases. And urolithiasis causes about 12 to 23% of the cases. Of all the cats with fluted, about 18 to 58% of cats will have a urinary obstruction. So what that tells us is that we can't predict who is going to get an obstruction. So it's always important when we do have these conversations with our owners, with our non-obstructed fluted cats, that there could be a very good chance that they could become obstructed. There have been some previous studies that have explored risk factors for fluted. Um, One set of studies that I'll talk about looked at breed for fluted signs. A paper out of two thousand one said that Persian, Minks, and Himalayans all had increased risk, while Siamese cats had a decreased. Another paper in two thousand ten also found that Persians had an increased risk. uh, But no studies have really been great at telling us if there is a breed predilection. Some have also looked at coat length. I think that we can all say that the most common cat that's going to block is going to be the fat orange cat. We'll talk a little bit more about the fat orange cat later. As far as age goes, those that are two to seven years have the highest risk. Some papers say four to seven years old, but really it's these middle-aged cats. A lot of studies have always, studies have also shown that body weight could be a risk factor. So like I said, the big fat orange cat is going to be at the highest risk of urinary signs or urinary obstruction. We're going to talk through a study a little bit later that was done in 2019, which looked more at body condition score than body weight itself. And as we all know, neutered male cats are going to be the most likely to have these fluted signs. Other things that people have looked at include environment and husbandry as to whether eating just a dry food may increase the risk, whether they're indoor only or have access to the outdoors may be a potentiator, or the season or the weather. And we'll talk through some of those. The theory is obviously biggest around indoor cats is that they're more stressed out. They just want to be living their life out on the streets and those that are doing their thing on the streets, have a little bit less stress, and may be less likely to obstruct. This is talked about in a couple different studies. <coughs> I don't think I have corona, but ignore my cough when it happens. The theories behind dry food are going to be as far as water intake and some acidification things about the urine. We'll talk about that as well. So, as far as pathophysiology, we really have to relate FIC to human interstitial cystitis. Um, and these guys have an abnormal degree of urethral or urothelial permeability, I should say. Um, in the healthy bladder, the mucus layer contains glycoaminoglycans and glycoproteins, which form a barrier which prevents leakage of urine through the urothelium. When you have disruption of this mucous layer, it allows for the migration of urinary solutes across the epithelium. And one of those urinary solutes is going to be potassium. So potassium, when it touches and gets the epithelium of the urinary bladder, can depolarize nerves and muscles and cause tissue injury. Studies in CATS have also documented that there's decreased concentration of urinary glycoaminoglycans and the epithelial barrier of bladders and FIC caps have been compromised. There's also some theories about this decrease in urine volume and the frequency of urination may complicate FIC because it allows for increased contact time of the highly concentrated urine with the uroepithelial tissue. There might be altered voiding, and this can be influenced by a decreased water consumption, confinement, impaired mobility... Um, the availability of litter boxes and if the owner ever cleans them, and then inter-cat aggression as well. At a more scientific level then the owner doesn't clean the litter box, there's some definitely some bladder changes that can be noted. So you can have an increase in urine fibronectin content. This has been thought of potentially to be a biomarker that can be used for FIC. There's a decrease in trefoil factor two. This decreases the repairing ability of the bladder and can also be used as a biomarker. There can be altered expression of co-purified proteins of fibronectin. This may be a point of therapeutic targets in the future. The urine total protein is transiently increased in obstructive FIC, and the urine fibronectin and thiorexidoxin are increased for about three months. So this may reflect ongoing structural or functional alterations in the urinary bladders of cats with obstructive FIC. The bladders of these cats also have an increase in uh, norepinephrine content and efflux and absence of alteration of acetylcholine. The mucosal layer of the bladders of these cats can also have increase in spontaneous calcium activity, and they're hypersensitive to low-dose muscarinic receptor antagonists. Sorry. So they are kind of ready to fire at any little thing. There's also an increase in maximal urethral closure pressure in the urethra and FIC. So medications for overactive bladder are not generally indicated, but these alpha-1 antagonists or skeletal muscle relaxants may be helpful or useful. So things like prazosin, phenoxybenzamine, and acepromazine. We'll talk more about those. Typical changes of the bladder also on histopath are going to include edema, hemorrhage, and dilation of the blood vessels. And they've also found that bladder mast cells are increased in FIC. So you have an increase in neurothelial permeability with an influx of potassium ions. This may lead to sensory afferent nerve upregulation and mast cell activation, which will further stimulate the afferent nerves, i.e. this becomes a vicious cycle of more and more damage to the bladder. There's also neuroendocrine abnormalities. So we talk a lot about stress currently. Everyone's on high degree of stress. So stress is our non-specific response of the body to any noxious agent or stressor. The stressor can be physical, be chemical, it can be psychological, it can be what we're watching on the news or not seeing people do to stay at home and socially distance. Any of those are gonna be stressors. For the cats right now, the stressor is the fact that we're socially distanced and we're staying home and invading their precious space. Corticotropin releasing factor, CRF, plays a central role in behavior and neuroendocrine responses to stress. There's evidence that both the onset and the exacerbation of IBS and IBD is local CRF-related peptide signaling. And this can alter the permeability of intestinal epithelial lining. Chronic stress in susceptible cats results in uncoupling of this normal stress response. So it produces an enhancement of the sympathetic nervous system outflow and suppressed adrenal cortical responses. So this leads to increased sensory stimulation and altered urothelial permeability. The altered hypothalamic pituitary axis response in cats causes an exaggerated catecholamine release and a blunted cortisol response. We see increasing concentrations of CRF in the CSF of these cats, and there's increased ACTH response and decreased cortisol response after CRF administration. We can also see smaller adrenal glands. It would actually be an interesting thing to look at in these cats, more as a research focus than really how it will affect us clinically, but to look at the adrenal glands or to think about doing ACTH stimulation tests in these blocked cats, just a mental note for later research. There's also higher plasma catecholamine concentrations and increase in urinary bladder permeability when this HPA is stimulated. The systemic effects of stress are not limited to the urinary bladder, but the lower urinary tract signs predominate in cats with FIC. This could be because of the anatomic proximity of the micturition and fear pathways, and they overlap via connections from the amygdala to the periaqueductal gray. The periaqueductal gray is an anatomic and functional interface between the forebrain and the lower brainstem with a major role in integrated behavioral responses to internal or external stressors. So I think about it as you're stressed out currently with what's happening, And these signals kind of get mixed up between the amygdala and the periaqueductal gray. And all of a sudden, you can't figure out how to pee anymore. And that's what's happening with our cats. As far as the diagnostic approach in these FIC cats, it really goes back to what I had mentioned earlier, where there's different ways that they can present. They can present in acute self-limiting episodes, whether it's being obstructed or not. They can present with frequent reoccurring episodes or chronic persistent episodes. Remember, both of these being the cases that we hate the most when they come in through the ER. The acute self-limiting episodes are 80 to 90% of the time. So rest assured, this is mainly the cases that you're gonna be seeing. The most common primary disease to exclude is gonna be urolithiasis. But I also propose that another thing to exclude or to look for is just gonna be the presence of crystal urea. So the recommended diagnostic tests are going to be a urinalysis and survey radiographs on these guys. Obviously, we're going to go down a little bit of a different pathway if they're obstructed. If they have frequent recurring episodes or more chronic persistent episodes, (coughs) again, you want to look for uroliths, but then delve into things like behavioral disorders, urinary tract infections, neoplasia or anatomic defects. So things, again, like a urinalysis, survey radiographs, taking an entire behavioral history from the owner, which we know that they would love to give us, a quantitative urine culture, an ultrasound, and potentially a contrast to all things that would be better served by our internist. I want to talk a bit about evidence-based management. So because most of these non-obstructive FICs will be self-limiting. They'll resolve within one to seven days without therapy. So we could be doing a whole ton of things where if we just sat back and done nothing, it would have resolved on its own. This makes evaluating treatments really difficult. So about 65% of cats with acute FIC will experience one or more recurrence of the clinical signs within one to two years. And 15% of cats with the signs will persist for weeks to months or become frequent, i.e. these chronic FICs. But as many of these signs will resolve on their own, we need to use evidence-based medicine. So I'm gonna go through some of the different treatments of FIC. We'll talk more specifically about UOs a bit later, but more treatments of FICs here. So one would be stress management. So we know that environmental enrichment, especially for indoor cats, can be really important. So these are to increase behavioral choices and draw out species-specific appropriate behaviors. This can be enhancing interactions with owners, who I propose what we're learning right now is that they don't want us anywhere near them, minimizing conflict, so maybe not having two cats that hate each other in the household, providing resources like toys or your Amazon boxes for them to crawl into, making changes gradually, and happy litter box environments. I have absolutely no clue what that means because I'm not a good cat owner, but I liked that phrasing. Another thing to think about is pheromones. As you will probably not be surprised to hear, there's insufficient evidence about pheromones, but they may be helpful in some cats with FIC and could be used after recommending other treatments that are supported by higher evidence. Pheromones are non-volatile molecules that regulate innate social behavior by activating the vomeronasal organ in sensory neurons. We could also consider supplements, so papers consider recommending L-tryptophan at 12.5 mg per kg, or alpha-casozepine, also called zilkine, at 15 mg per kg, in addition to the environmental enrichments. I could be pronouncing that completely wrong, but I have never and hope to never prescribe that medication. L-tryptophan is a precursor for serotonin synthesis, as I'm sure we all know. And the other one, casazopine, is from a protein which is shown to alleviate stress in rodents and people. It actually comes from milk protein, so this is kind of the theories behind milk making you less stressed out. This, besides just saying that mom giving you warm milk will make you less stressed, may be mediated by GABA receptors. We can also consider foods containing nutrients with anti-anxiety benefits in conjunction with environmental enrichment. As far as nutritional management, increasing water intake, increasing sodium intake, addition of broth or other methods may or may not be beneficial for cats with FIC, but we all know that owners like things that they can try to do. Diluting the urine via additional water intake could dilute noxious stimuli to the bladder such as urea and potassium chloride. There's no known benefit of urine acidification or controlling magnesium or phosphorus intake in cats with non-obstructive FIC, but it may be important for preventing UO, struvites are the most common mineral component of the majority of urethral plugs, so we might want to use foods that target that. Nutritional factors that may impact outcome in FIC include decreasing urine concentrations of pro inflammatory mediators and crystallogenic minerals, decreasing retention of crystals in the urinary tract increasing urine concentrations of anti-inflammatory mediators and crystallization inhibitors, and increasing solubility of crystalloids in the urine. For me, that all sounds really, really complicated, so I choose to use things like Royal Canin Esso and Hills CD or SD, none of which are supporting this podcast. I just know that it's the easiest thing to prescribe for these animals. Okay, getting to the meat, so some pharmacologic therapy. Treatment with glycosaminoglycans like pentosan polysulfate, leucosamine, or chondroitin sulfate have all been looked at. This is because, again, defects in the gag layer covering the urinary bladder and epithelium plays a role. So people have looked at intravesicular application of these agents, which is useful in humans with interstitial cystitis. Oral gags could be helpful, but a randomized study in CATS that took glucosamine did not show any statistical difference. And a study in cats with sub-Q gags also showed no difference. There's a below study which looks at a little bit more into this, of instilling things into the bladder. Amitriptyline is a tricyclic antidepressant with anticholinergic, antihistamine, sympatholytic, analgesic, and anti-inflammatory properties. That sucked to get through. A meta-analysis in humans with interstitial cystitis showed some benefit of using amitriptyline. There's insufficient evidence in cats for short-term treatment, so mainly all the ones that we're going to see, but this is something to consider if you end up taking care of a cat more long-term. The dose would be 5 to 10 mg per cat, Q24, if they have recurrent episodes. As far as anti-inflammatories and analgesics, we do recommend pain control, Is it supposed to be buprenorphine, gabapentin, fentanyl? We really have absolutely no clue. And I think that this is going to be a target of more studies. Obviously, in our population where we used to give them all buprenorphine and we've switched almost exclusively to gabapentin for the treatment, I think that we have a population where we could really easily do a retrospective study. Met Clinics of North America 2015 doesn't really comment on gabapentin at all, and probably because most of us have switched to gabapentin a little bit more recently, especially as controlled substances have been harder to get. They do comment that NSAIDs should be used in caution. This is because of the effects on prostaglandins, and then therefore renal blood flow in an already damaged kidney. So I would definitely steer clear of any NSAIDs, but these were more commonly used. Okay, we got through the boring stuff. No one really wants to manage the non-blocked urethra cat. We just want to deal with the ones that have urethral obstruction. And so I want to talk more specifically about that. And most of this information is going to come from a 2015 JVAC review called Controversies in the Management of Feline UO. This was an entire um, issue of JVAC, which did different controversies, This one focusing on urinary obstruction. So our earlier thoughts about the cause of urinary obstruction in cats was that urethral plugs cause this in about 60% of cases, calculi in about 20%, stricture and neoplasia in less than 5%, and the remainder were idiopathic, which is really a very small amount. But more recent studies have shown that idiopathic is really the cause of the majority, about 53%. About 30% have urolithiasis and 18% have plugs. There's also a notion that cases can have a functional obstruction secondary to urethral spasm and edema alone or with stones and plugs. There's also some thoughts on viruses like Khaleesi virus, feline foamy virus, which I've never heard of before, and gamma herpes virus. They have found that cats with FIC have higher uh, feline virus titers, which is interesting. It doesn't affect how I treat them in any way. Crystals have previously been implicated as a factor in the development of FIC and urethral obstruction. There is some thought about whether this is a cause or effect. So as they develop FIC, do they then have more of a tendency to form crystals? As far as predisposing factors, there's a lot of crossover from what we talked about for FIC. Obviously, the biggest thing in my mind and what I explain to owners is that male cats were made incorrectly with an incredibly long, super narrow urethra just waiting to become obstructed. I think that all cats should have a PU the second that they're born, but that hasn't been accepted by Vet Med yet. In comparing obstructive versus non-obstructive fluted, they have found that there's an increase in sediment activity like hematuria, pyuria, and crystal urea. And an increase in urine protein creatinine ratios in those that are obstructive. One study that looked specifically at predisposing factors for urinary obstruction in fluted found that indoor outdoors protective. Those that were obstructive compared to non obstructive were older, they weighed more, and they ate more dry food only. But there was no association with breed, neuter status, vaccine, or the number of angry cats in the household. Okay, going down the trend of how we treat these guys. So first, we'll talk about fluids. There's always been a long debate about what we should be using as far as our type of fluid, whether we should be using saline, because saline doesn't have any potassium, or whether we should be using a more balanced solution like Normar. Saline doesn't have any potassium, but it is acidifying because of its high chloride and no buffer. Some of Our balanced solutions are going to have some potassium, so about 4 to 5 millicues per liter. A study that looked at, and we'll talk about it more in depth, sodium chloride and NORM found no difference in outcome as far as survival to discharge and length of hospitalization or reduction in potassium when we compare these two fluids. The acid base did correct better when using NORM. When they compared fluids in an experimentally induced feline UO where they made them all azotemic, seems like a kind of mean study, but it did tell us that there was more rapid improvement of acid base in LRS compared to saline, but there was no difference in outcome, potassium, or change in azotemia. So what we know is that fluid type does not have a clinically relevant impact on the resolution of patient outcome, but we do need more prospective studies. As far as the fluid rate, Fluid so rate should be based on replacement of dehydration added to maintenance, and there's no real guidelines to choosing the rate. I think most of you guys that have worked with me have seen what I'll do with these guys is I'll calculate their dehydration and their maintenance, and then I'll start them on a two mil per kg ongoing losses for the presumed polyuria that's going to happen due to post-obstructive diuresis. We are going to talk a bit about post-obstructive diuresis and on fluid overload. But the problem is if you're going to match their fluids to their output from the beginning, you're not going to ever catch up with them because you can't produce urine until you've filled up the sink. And if they're that dehydrated, it's going to take some time before they start to produce adequate amount of urine. So I don't try to match fluids in and out until a little bit later on in treatment. Eventually... You do want to decrease your fluids so that you're not driving their diuresis, but in the beginning, especially if you're worried about reestablishing renal blood flow and therefore GFR, and you're trying to get them better hydrated, and really as a more global goal to get their azotemia to resolve, you do have to be a bit aggressive with their fluids. Post-obstructive diuresis is multifactorial. So it probably comes from accumulation of osmotically active substances in the blood. That's the osmotic diuresis. Tubular epithelial dysfunction. So the tubular cells are pissed off from this increase in hydrostatic pressure from the obstruction. There's medullary washout. So in the um, kidney, you have this urea concentration as you go down deeper into the medulla. And as you have things that are going to affect reabsorption of solutes in water, that medullary interstitium gradient is going to change, and you get something called medullary washout. You can also have ADH or vasopressin resistance, which is going to change how we're able to reabsorb water, therefore increasing the free water loss. And we can have increases in natriuretic factors. So this is going to increase our sodium excretion, therefore increasing our water excretion as well. One study looked at post-obstructive diuresis in feline UO. It was published in the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery in 2010. This found that 46% of the cats had evidence of diuresis by six hours post-obstruction, but every patient eventually experienced diuresis a little bit harder to judge that as time goes on because some of that diuresis is going to be due to our fluid therapy. But that 50% that had diuresis by about six hours, that probably is a, more of a true post-obstructive diuresis. The degree of azotemia was not linked to the likelihood of developing post-obstructive diuresis, which is interesting and kind of against what I had really considered but there was an association with the presence of baseline acidemia, which is really interesting um, and nothing that I've ever thought about. If we're gonna talk about controversies, uh, why can't I say that word? Controversies of urinary obstruction cats. We really can't do that without talking about decompressive cysto. I was, we'll ignore U of I because I don't remember ever seeing a blocked cat there. But then I went to the University of Minnesota for my internship, and it was policy there that you did a decompressive cysto on every single cat that came in obstructed. So, do a decompressive cysto, get an x ray on them, see if they have stones so you have a better idea of what you're working with, and then unblock them. At Michigan State, where I did my residency, it was the complete opposite. You were Pretty much not allowed to do a decompressive cysto for risk or worry that you are going to pop their bladder. Went to then Wisconsin afterwards, and it was a free-for-all of whatever you wanted to do and thought was best. And that's kind of how I practice now. I don't routinely do a decompressive cysto on every animal, but I do do ones on animals that I think are going to be a hard unblock, or if I'm starting to unblock them and I can't get them unblocked quickly enough. The way that you do a decompressive cysto is important though. So you want to have them be a little bit quiet. You don't want them squirming or freaking out. We all know that blocked cats are angry little devils because you don't want them freaking out while you're jabbing a needle into their bladder. Most of them do okay with it though. It's important to remember though that you don't want to access the bladder right at the apex because you can imagine as that bladder gets smaller, your needle's gonna come right out of the bladder. So you want to do more middle of the bladder and pointing towards the trigone with your needle. You then want your needle attached to an extension set, a three-way stopcock, and then somebody else that's emptying it. So that if the cat moves, you're not trying to hold a syringe right attached to the needle at the bladder, which is gonna increase the chance of lacerating the bladder. And that is the main concern, tearing or rupturing the bladder. As I've said many, many times, if the bladder ruptures because you poke it with a needle, it was going to rupture anyways. But if you lacerate that bladder using bad technique, that one's probably on you. There is thought that the more friable or distended the bladder, the greater risk they're at, which is probably true. But again, if you're going to rupture the bladder with a good clean stick, it was about to rupture anyways. The actual risk is really low. There've been a couple different papers, which we'll talk about in more detail, one by Cooper out of Ohio State and one by Hall out of Minnesota. They did note, both of them, that you can often have fluid present before and after the cystocentesis, and I think that we all see that clinically too, where we'll have our x-rays, we haven't done a decompressive cysto, and they're still reported as having a decreased detail, probably due to some extravasation from the bladder. There is an ACE plus cystocentesis protocol. Um, I'll talk about this a little bit more too. Uh, But this protocol done at Ohio State, they use ACE and buprenorphine and then do a decompressive cysto up to every eight hours as needed and keep them in a low stress environment for four days. This study that looked at this excluded toxic cats. This was the low cost alternative to doing normal treatment. I think at many hospitals, this might not actually be a low cost because four days in hospital with us would be incredibly expensive. Um, But they did find that they had 73% success, meaning they they urinated and were able to leave the hospital and three out of 15 of them developed a uroabdomen. The next thing to discuss is which catheter should we be doing, what size, how long, all tons of debates that we all can step on our soapbox about. So as far as the type goes, our polypropylene catheters, or what we call the Tomcat catheters, are the most rigid. They can be used to relieve the obstruction. Please, I wish I never saw this happen, but I know that people do. They do carry more of a risk of trauma, especially if you use the polypropylene to force through rather than use it to flush. They are more reactive and irritating to the urethra and should not be left indwelling. Then there's polyvinyl catheters. These are red rubbers. These are softer, they tend to have side holes, so they're not ideal for unblocking, but they can be placed after initial unblock. A study looked at actually histopath of the urethra with those catheterized with polyvinyl um, compared to those that were not catheterized and those catheterized with polypropylene and found that the polyvinyl and those not catheterized were very difficult to distinguish microscopically but those with polypropylene had significant urethral inflammation. Your other type of catheter is polytetrafluoroethylene or polyurethane. These are our slippery sand catheters. These tend to soften up more with body temperature and so might be even better as indwelling catheters. There's some concern about polyvinyls maybe having an increased incidence of microfilm formation and therefore maybe having a higher incidence of urinary tract infections. This is all anecdotal and has not been looked at, but would be a good thing to look at. A bigger question is how do we unblock these guys? And I obviously have a huge soapbox that I sit on as far I stand, all of my five foot four on, as far as how we should be unblocking these. And using a Tomcat catheter to push through the urethra to me is a great way of causing a tear. Whereas I was trained with a olive tip catheter. You just insert it in the tip of the penis and then flush and then are able to place a different catheter like your slippery Sam straight into the bladder. And that would be my preference. We're not jamming a Tomcat catheter causing more inflammation of the urethra. Because olive tip catheters are sometimes hard to acquire, often thrown out, and are weirdly expensive, I think a lot of us have started to just use normal IV catheters without the stylet, obviously. So 18, 20 gauge catheter to flush the urethra. And I think that that's a really good option as well. What I'll generally do is attach that catheter, whichever one I choose to use to a extension set, potentially a three way stopcock and a syringe if I'm doing this all by myself, but at least, uh, um, extension set and then a syringe filled with flush and then i'm able to extrude the penis hold the urethra in and then use my other hand a flush without pressing against myself as i hold the catheter in the urethra as far as the size a bigger catheter may be better for um, decreasing the risk of kinking or luminal obstruction they're also less likely potentially to urinate around the catheter. But there is some thought that it could cause more irritation or trauma to the urethra. One study did show in 2013, we'll talk about it more in detail because it's a seminal article by Hetrick, that a five French had increased incidence of re-obstruction within 24 hours as compared to the three and a half French. So 19% versus 7%. That was both statistically significant and clinically significant as well. Another study that was actually published at the exact same year by Eisenberg did not find any association, though. You'll see this trend in urinary obstruction research is one is going to show something and the next paper, potentially published at the exact same time, is going to show the exact opposite. As far as the duration of time that we should be using this catheter in, I think the most important thing is that it's time to allow for resolution of inflammation, clearing of debris, clots, and crystals. The presence of the catheter itself can cause irritation, so we don't want to leave it in too much, but we also don't want to leave it in too short of a time so that they have a higher in chance of obstructing. So, common criteria is resolution of the azotemia, resolution of a post obstructive diuresis, and clear urine. That's what we tend to use here with additional kind of guidelines so that our owners are well prepared of about 36 hours. Obviously, longer if they haven't hit those other landmarks and shorter if the owner's not able to afford that kind of care the eisenberg study in 2013 did find that recurrent obstructions had a shorter time of urinary catheterization than those that didn't but if you actually look at the numbers the difference between those two groups was 24.5 hours and 26.5 hours that is not a clinical significance between those two this, the paper that came out at the same time, the Hettrick paper, did not find any association with time of urinary catheterization. The next main controversy is going to be using antimicrobials. Traditionally, it was thought that to be that less than 2% of UTIs occurred in these guys, but newer studies show that it might be a higher incidence of bacteria bacteria, bacteria in the urine about 12 to 40%. Antimicrobials have also been found, and this is proven, they do not prevent the development of catheter-associated UTIs. So putting them on antibiotics just because they have a catheter, whether it's a urinary catheter, a thoracic drainage catheter, an IV catheter, not a great idea. One study out of Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery, again, my favorite journal of all, in 2013, found that they had 0% positive cultures on presentation, but 33% developed a UTI while they were catheterized. This study showed that 50% were positive culture at 24 hours and 50% by 48 hours. They mainly grew strep E. coli and staph. A paper out of 2019 by Cooper from Ohio State showed that 13% had developed a positive culture, mainly strep and pastorella, And all of those that were positive were positive by 24 hours. What we do know is that they're very unlikely to have UTI unless they have been catheterized before. And that routinely sending them home on antibiotics is not recommended. You can consider obtaining a culture when you pull the urinary catheter, but not from the catheter tip. These tend to have a lot of contamination or you can have them recheck in about three days. What we're seeing a lot of are these guys that develop UTIs in hospital and then reobstruct, and I think that that again is a retrospective paper that we need to look at because we've had so many that have developed UTIs. We haven't been able to find the exact cause of why we've had these spike, but a large amount of these are reobstructing in the hospital. So we need a better way of screening them for getting a UTI before we pull that urinary catheter. So that we can get some antibiotics on board. Obviously goes without saying, we also need to stop having these guys develop UTIs. And that probably is gonna be more stringent things as far as draping, and making sure that we do urinary catheter care. The last big controversy to talk about, I think I said it right that time, is your our urethral relaxants and antispasmodics. So a little bit of anatomy, only the proximal quarter to a third is smooth muscle in the urethra. So there's very little effect on the distal urethra. There's also limited evidence of spasm and increase in urethral pressures. One study actually found that they have normal to low urethral pressures in obstruction. So things that we've looked at are phenoxybenzamine, acepromazine, and prazosin. They all act in some way as an alpha-1 antagonist. Phenoxybenzamine is a non-selective alpha-adrenergic antagonist, so it works on both alpha-1 and alpha-2. And it can decrease pre-prostatic urethral pressure profiles, but it appears to be less effective than some of our other options. And the effects as far as the urethra can be delayed up to a week. But because it's non-selective, it will have more effects on our cardiovascular system and can cause hypotension, those effects can happen much quicker than the effects on the urethra. Acepromazine also can have a significant reduction in preprostatic and prostatic intraurethral urethral pressures, but there's no discernible effect on the postprostatic or penile urethra, and it can cause sedation, but that may help reduce stress. Prozacin is our selective alpha-1 antagonist. It has faster onset and is not sedating like ace. It has a higher alpha 1 affinity than phenoxybenzamine, so it's more specifically able to decrease the urethral smooth muscle contractility and has fewer cardiovascular adverse effects. Again, though, it only works on the preprostatic and the prostatic urethra. The decrease in sympathetic outflow, um, as well as the direct alpha 1 antagonism of the urethral smooth muscle, is probably why it's going to work well. The Hetrick paper in 2013 found that those with prazosin on board had significantly lower rates of recurrent obstruction at 24 hours, 7 versus 22 percent, and at 30 days, 18 versus 39 percent. A paper in 2012 out of JVAC by Thomas found that in a double-blinded placebo-controlled study, they did not find a difference in recurrence for those that received prazosin for one month post-obstruction. I think a big thing when we're talking with owners when we're first admitting these cats with urinary obstruction is to educate them on the outcome because the obstruction itself this first case is expensive but knowing what can come down the line can be really important we've all had cats that we've treated for obstruction owners you know poured all their money into it and we pulled the UCAT and they blocked it again and we end up euthanizing the cats and so I think that these conversations are important to have at the beginning There's really varying numbers about who obstructs, but probably somewhere around a quarter is a good amount to give as a blanket statement, whether it's going to be immediately or six months or two years down the road. And there's a bunch of different risk factors. And like I said, we're going to talk through some articles next, and that is going to help us determine what some of these risk factors may be. Spoiler alert, we don't really know, and we have a lot more studies that we need to do. Okay. Now would be a time for a break from the sponsors. We are currently being sponsored by the fact that I haven't left my house all day and the fact that I ate an entire box of Cheez-Its today. So I'm going to go through some different papers and we're going to go through them chronologically. Some of these I will call seminal papers. That Okay. This is part two of urethral obstructions. You may have heard some sounds during part one. I would like to, again, say I had to hold my phone next to my computer and re-record things. And during that time, I got hungry. So I was eating some popcorn and I realized that could have been loud. We'll have to see. Also, I started working out and snapped my resistance band against myself. So I think I shouted ow at some point. All these things just make it more fun. But this is part two of the recording. So I'm going to go through some different papers, and we're going to go through them chronologically. Some of these I will call seminal papers. That means that ACVAC has deemed these as the most important papers, no matter when they were first written for people that are going to be sitting boards to know about. So they probably have some good pertinence to us, too. But really what I'm going to try to pull from these papers is what is relevant to us clinically as well. So the first paper is from 2003, written by Drobats, who's one of the big names of critical care, and this is characterization of the clinical characteristics, electrolytes, acid base, and renal parameters in cats with urethral obstructions. This is a seminal paper. So this one found that 12% of cats with obstructions had severe hyperkalemia, and most also had an acidemia and a low ionized calcium. They found that potassium was inversely correlated with the pH, bicarb, partial pressure of CO2, sodium chloride, and ionized calcium, and positively correlated with BUN and creatinine. So difference between negatively or inversely correlated and positively correlated is positively correlated just means you have a positive slope. So as potassium increases, there is an association with an increase in creatinine as well. Ionized calcium was also positively correlated with pH and bicarb, so what this is actually saying is the more acidemic they were, the more chance they had of having it hypokalemia. Of those with a potassium greater than 8, 75% of them had an ionized calcium less than 1, and 79% had a pH of less than 7.2 if they were uh, hyperkalemic. 72% of those with a pH of less than 70.2 had an ionized calcium of less than one. So really what to get from this paper, I think this paper has kind of reached the end of what is, needs to be seminal, but those that are azotemic also tended to be more hyperkalemic, hypocalcemic, and acidemic. The next paper that I touched on before is also by Drobats out of 2008 JVAC, and this is Influence of Crystalloid Type on Acid Base and Electrolyte Status of Cats with Urethral Obstruction. This is an old paper, so you know it's probably a seminal paper. And they found, like I had mentioned before, that NORMAR had better pH at 12 hours, a greater increase in blood pH from baseline to 6 hours and 12 hours, a higher bicarb at 12 hours, and a greater increase in bicarb from six to 12 hours. So really what that's saying is that NORMAR had better resolution of the acid-base status as soon as six hours. There was a higher increase in chloride at two, six, and 12 hours in cats that were on saline, which makes sense because the chloride levels of saline are gonna be much, much higher than in NORM, about 30 millicues per liter or more. There was no difference in the rate of decline of potassium, though, depending on these. And that's really the reason that people would choose saline, because saline has zero potassium per liter, whereas our balanced crystalloids are going to have four to five millicues of potassium per liter. But there was no difference in how quickly we were able to reestablish a normal potassium. And that's probably because what we're giving in the fluids has so much less than what we're trying to dilute down, and the other things that we're doing to resolve the hyperkalemia. So things that we can do to resolve hyperkalemia include just allowing the urine to flow, dilution with anything, and then other treatments like giving albuterol, which is gonna exchange potassium and hydrogen ions, giving dextrose to stimulate insulin to do the same. All of these are gonna very quickly help with a decline in potassium. They did do a subgroup analysis of just the hyperkalemic cats and the acidemic cats and still found these similar results. So what this tells us is grab a bag of fluids, give them fluids, do the other things you need to do to treat that blocked cat, and don't stress about what fluid you're giving them. The next paper is one of the big landmark papers in feline urinary obstruction. I've mentioned it a couple of times. This is urethral obstruction in cats, predisposing factors, clinical Clinical Pathological Characteristics, and Prognosis. This is another seminal paper out of 2011, Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery. And what they found is that when they compared cases, so cats with obstruction and control, which were matched cases that came in at the same time that were not obstructive, they found that cats that were obstructive had a, were younger and had a higher body weight than those that didn't. There was no difference in whether they came from an urban or rural setting, whether they were vaccinated, dewormed, there were additional animals in the house or the season. They did find that those in the urinary obstruction group had a less of a tendency to be indoor-outdoor, so they are more just indoor, and they were more likely to eat a dry food. They also found that creatinine was positively correlated with potassium, and that white blood cell count, oh, sorry, creat was positively correlated with potassium and white blood cell count, and it was negatively correlated with ionized calcium, urine-specific gravity, and chloride. Those things as far as potassium, creatinine, and cal, very similar to that Drobat study. They did find that there was bacteria in 43% of cases, which is a really high number, And they found that struvites were present in about 40% of cases, pyuria in 65% of cases, and hematuria in almost all of them at 96%. They had a positive urine culture insensitivity in 44% of those that were submitted for culture. But they did note that a lot of these had catheters that were placed by the referral partner prior to the presentation at the specialty hospital. They mainly grew E. coli, Pseudomonas, and Proteus. The median duration of urinary catheterization was 42 hours with a median length of hospitalization about three and a half days. So a little bit longer than what we typically do. And 10% ended up getting a PU at some point. 8.5% of these did not survive to discharge. And all of when they look at the tendency to survive or not survive, they found that a previous treatment from a referral partner was associated with non-survival. So whether they'd been unblocked Prior to being sent over, they had a higher tendency to not survive. There was no effect on survival from the presenting clinical signs or the signalment. They did find, though, that the creatinine and the potassium were higher in the nine survivors, but this was not statistically significant. And there was a trend to higher potassium. Whenever you hear a trend to... It means that the author thinks that that p-value is getting close to significant. A p of point, less than 0.05 is considered significant. It means that it's not just due to chance. And so when they say a trend to, it's because they want to include those results, but they know they're not actually statistically significant. They did find that ionized calcium was higher in survivors. This, show, this paper also showed that 22% of them had recurrent urinary obstruction without, within six months of their first obstruction. Those that were indoor-outdoor had less recurrent, though diet did not have an effect, and cats that had recurrence tended to have a higher USG and a lower pH on presentation. I've mentioned the ionized calcium a couple different times, and this, is, this really needs to be an entirely different topic. But ionized calcium, I would think of more in this case as a biomarker to severity of illness rather than being a direct causal effect in any way. When we look at retrospective studies, that's something to really consider because you can't make causal relationships. You can't say that a low ICAL caused them to have less survival. You just you can't say anything about causality in retrospective. You can say that it's associated. Then you have to look at the causes of the ionized hypocalcemia. Um, and that, like I said, is a, is a whole different topic and one that's talked about a lot in sepsis and in trauma, but that's more of an association than any kind of causality. Going down the timeline, we're at 2012 now, where a paper came out that looked at intravesicular application of lidocaine and sodium bicarb in the treatment of obstructive idiopathic lower urinary tract disease in CATS. This was published in JVIM, um, and this, they did treatment with intravesticular alkanolized lidocaine and bicarbs in people with interstitial interstitial cystitis. (coughs) This was reported to ameliorate symptoms beyond the acute phase in treatment. Interstitial cystitis can develop into a visceral allodynia, so a malresponsiveness to pain sensation as a result of a sensitized local bladder afferent nerves. So the aim of this study was to determine whether intravesicular lidocaine could decrease the severity of clinical signs or recurrence rate with obstructive idiopathic fluted. So this was a prospective study where they looked at uh, cats that had a partial or complete obstruction. They did not include any that had a stone found, or UTI, or if they found a urethral plug on catheterization, though they didn't mention anything about crystals. Um, They all had the same anesthesia. They all had the same catheter, slippery SAM, and they kept them all in for three days on buprenorphine and IV fluids. So pretty well um, designed study to keep those all the same. They initially gave them all 0.1 mLs per kg. Sorry, not all, the ones in the study group. 0.1 0.1 mils per kg of 2% lidocaine and sodium bicarb at 0.06 mils per kg. Um, they didn't find any adverse effects on that, so they also did a group that had double the amount of lidocaine at 0.2 mils per kg. So before installation, they emptied the bladder, and then they instilled the solution, and then they closed off the UCALF for one hour and then reattached it to the collection set. And they did this once a day for up to three consecutive days. And then after they remove the catheter, they monitored them in hospital every two hours for up to two days. They also started clavamox or amoxicillin concurrently as um, when they deobstructed them, and then continued it as long as they didn't reobstruct. And they sent them home on buprenorphine and meloxicam. So there are obviously some things here. This is eight years ago. That this study was published. There's a lot of different ideas about how we treat these now. Um, but their primary endpoint was really recurrence within two months. they ended up having 69 cats. Um, They had to exclude a lot for different reasons and ended up with 26 cats. They found that there was 58% recurrence in those that were treated with the lidocaine bicarb and 57% in the control group. Um, And what they found was that this happened this recurrence happened between 1 and 14 days, a median of three days post pulling the UCAF. They did also look at amelioration scores, so this clinical more, more chronic clinical signs at home, and those were also similar between groups. So they didn't find a reason to continue to do this. 2012 was a big year for urinary obstruction studies. The next one was out of JVAC in 2012. And this was retrospective evaluation of presenting temperature of urethral-obstructed male cats and the association with severity of azotemia and length of hospitalization, 243 cats, 2006-2009. to 2009. We definitely should be trying to make these titles a little bit shorter so that I can breathe while I'm saying them. They found that um, there was an increasing trend to longer length of hospitalization if they were hypothermic, but the p-value of that was not significant. They also found that there was no difference in the degree of hypothermia and the length of hospitalization, but hypothermia was significantly associated with azotemia, and the difference between BUN and creatinine in the hypothermic group, when they compared that to the normothermic and the hyperthermic. They also found that there was a difference in levels of azotemia and the grades of hypothermia, so the mild hypothermics had less severe azotemia than the severe hypothermics. They did find that length of hospitalization was correlated with the degree of azotemia, potassium, and heart rate, and inversely correlated with PCV and chloride. None of these were great correlations, though. So what you're looking at for correlations is the R value. The R value goes between negative 1 and 1. The closer you are to 1, the tighter that correlation is. And the closer you are to zero, the less tight that correlation is. Positive one is going to be a positive correlation. So an increase in one correlates with an increase of the other factor. Negative correlation, obviously, is the inverse. The best R that they had in that length of hospitalization correlation was only 0.35. And that was the correlation between length of hospitalization and BUN. So it is important when you're looking at these papers to not only look at the p-value, but the R's as you're looking at correlations as well. Rectal temperature was negatively correlated with azotemia, potassium, and positively correlated with chloride and respiratory rate. These correlations were slightly better. BUN, creatine, and potassium were all correlated with each other, which makes sense. And lactate was positively correlated with potassium, chloride, heart rate, and respiratory rate. More clinically important for us, again, I like to have these kinds of numbers so that I can have appropriate discussions with my owners, is that fifteen percent reobstructed and five percent died or were euthanized. So a summary of this, they had a lot of correlations and numbers, is that BUN creatinine were correlated with length of hospitalization and were higher or they were more azotemic, the more hypothermic they were. They also found that potassium was negatively correlated with heart rate makes sense and temperature and was positively correlated with BUN and creatinine also makes sense and there was no association between length of hospitalization and rectal temperature so it probably has more to do with how severe they are but that doesn't mean that you can't fix them. Still in 2012 we have a very important paper because it comes from one of all of our friends Dr. Elaine Holmes and this was in JAVMA in 2012 Use of fluoroscopically guided percutaneous antegrade urethral catheterization for the treatment of urethral obstruction in male cats. Nine cases two thousand to two thousand nine. So what this is saying is the use of fluoro to antegrade a wire, so from the bladder out the penis, and then use that to place a catheter in these cats that we can't deobstruct our standard way. The main diagnosis that they ended up finding on these cats that they had to do this on were iatrogenic tears, obstructive calculi, urethral ulcerations, and stricture, and seven out of nine of them were successful. The two that failed had obstructions that prevented even the guide wire from being able to access, and the time to be able to do the procedure is 25 minutes to 120 minutes. I can say having done a good number of these that it really does have to do with Kind of skill set and muscle memory. So I think if I were going to do one now, I'd probably be at that two hour mark. Whereas at some point in my life, in a past life, I probably could get these done in about 25 minutes. They did find that there were no complications. And a really good part about this paper, besides the fact that it comes from a brilliant Elaine Holmes, is that they do go through the procedure. So in this procedure, they have a patient under general anesthesia. I've done this with them just sedated as well. You have them in lateral recumbency, and the ventral lateral um, side and belly and the perineum are all clipped, scrubbed, and draped. So they have a very weird clip where their entire side of their belly and then all around their perineum is clipped. And then, under fluoro guidance, you palpate the bladder and then use an 18 gauge IV catheter, insert it in the bladder at the apex. Unlike doing a decompressive cysto, you really can do this closer to the apex because you're not draining the bladder. And you point your catheter in the direction of the trigone. You can make a stab incision to get it through the skin, which sometimes helps. You then remove your stylet, and then you attach your catheter to an extension set. The extension set is attached to a three-way stopcock, and then you have two syringes on that three-way stopcock. One is just a 20-mil syringe that's empty. And one is a 20 mL syringe with a 50/50 dilution of saline and an iodinated contrast. You then remove about five to 10 mL from the bladder. This allows you some space to then put contrast in, but is also then your sample for a UA and a culture, which isn't coming from your catheter. Which sorry, your urinary catheter, so you might have less um, contamination. And then you inject an equal volume of contrast into the bladder, bladder's moderately distended. And you can see your bladder outline in the proximal urethra. You can then do a cystourethrogram at this point. You then take your extension set and your stopcock off and you put a 035 hydrophilic angle guide wire and you start it through the catheter. You then just, using floral guidance and again, It gets easier the more you do. You manipulate that towards the trigone, down the urethra, and then out the body. And then you can use a catheter, either a red rubber with the tip cut off. You really should try to burn the edges, though, so it doesn't cause more trauma. Or there's some other um, catheters that you can use as well. You then place it over the wire and then back up through the penis over the wire while holding some tension on the wire on both sides will help you. And then once you have that urinary catheter in place, you remove the wire through the U cath, not back through the skin, and then you remove your IV catheter that you'd used for insertion. The next paper is one that I've mentioned many times already is the 2013 paper out of JAVMA by Hetrick, and this is the initial treatment factors associated with feline urethral obstruction recurrence rate. 192 cases 2004 to 2010. So this is one that's going to really be important as far as looking at what we can do potentially to prevent recurrence but also to prepare our owners for the inevitable that some of these cats are just going to re-obstruct. So their purpose was to evaluate the association of treatment factors such as size of catheter, duration of catheterization, and medication on the rate of recurrent UO in the first 24 hours and 30 days. This was a retrospective study, though they excluded those that had urolithiasis that had already been unblocked by their referral partner. They were transferred out of the hospital before they removed the UCath. They blocked within the seven days prior. or They were discharged within 24 hours from removal with no follow-up. They had lack of imaging. They were just treated outpatient. They were euthanized before all of this was done. They had bladder rupture. They chose a random UCath type, or they had cancer. So they had 192 cases, which is a great number. And they found that 11% had recurrent UO within 24 hours and 23.6% within 30 days. Again, these are just numbers to kind of get in your head of how we should be preparing our owner. So I usually say about 25% will have a reobstruction at some point. 75% of those that did develop a re Reobstruction did so within 48 hours and 86% within four days. Also, a good point for the owners is that the vast majority of these, if they're going to reobstruct, are going to do it right away, though so this can become a chronic problem. 19% of those that reobstructed were euthanized. They don't really go into costs and things like that or the reasons behind the euthanasias. What they did find is that age, temperature, body weight, azotemia, and hyperkalemia did not differ between cats that had a recurrent UO or not. They did, as they looked at the study, had a big shift in the middle of their years where they shifted from treating with phenoxybenzamine to prazosin. They shifted away from using meloxicam to using buprenorphine. Along with this, they found a significant change in a decrease in recurrent UO, within 30 days after this protocol change. So 36% of them before things changed to 19% after. Again, this is a retrospective study. So this isn't that they had really two controlled groups. It's just that they had a change in how they, quote unquote, had protocolized their medicine, just like we have here at MedVet Chicago, where we were using a lot of buprenorphine. And now we tend to use more gabapentin. At 24 hours, those that were on prazosin had less of a recurrent UO than those on phenoxybenzamine. <clears throat> and at 30 days, this stayed different. So they did recommend, or I shouldn't say that, for most of these, they did continue those medications for one week post. 63% of the total cases were on opioids, most commonly that was buprenorphine. And they didn't find any difference in recurrent UO at 24 or 30 days whether they were on an opioid or not. There's also no difference on recurrent UO if they're on meloxicam or not. They used antibiotics in about 35%. Again, no difference on the occurrence of, reoccurrence of UO. And 21% had an initial UTI, though there was no difference on recurrence if they had a UTI or not. Um, it was 10% versus 11% at 24 hours. There's also no difference in the duration of UCAF And both groups had a mean duration of urinary catheterization of 36 hours. So really the same as what we do here. They did find that the three and a half French catheter had less recurrent UO than the five French at 24 hours, but not at 30 days statistically. Though let me give you these numbers. So this is the thing of looking at statistics versus, you know, kind of getting an idea of the numbers. So 24 hours, this was statistically significant. 6.6% of those with a three and a half French re obstructive of 19% of those with a five French. And at 30 days, 17% with a three and a half French and 31% of the five French. When they combined using a five French UCAF and using phenoxybenzamine, this was the highest rate of recurrent UO than any other combination. The paired study that came out the same year by Eisenberg in 2013, also in JAVMA, looked at evaluation of risk factors associated with the recurrent obstruction in cats treated medically for urethral obstruction. Both this one and the Hetrick paper are both seminal papers, so still really, really important. The biggest things that they found here is that older cats had more recurrent UO, um, longer catheterization, had a decreased UO, and there's no difference in the amount of fluids that they were given. But I'm going to delve into this a little bit more since it's such an important paper. So they did find that there was an increased risk of reobstruction with higher age, 8.2 for those that reobstructed, and four years old for those that didn't. But body weight was not associated with recurrence. There was no association between lab work and recurrence. They found that 69 out of 81 of them had crystal urea, and this was not associated with reoccurrence, nor was USG or PH. They also found that there was caudal abdominal effusion in 10 out of 34 cases. There's mineral or other calculi in five out of 34, and calculi in one out of 34, this was not associated with reoccurrence. You kind of wonder with that calculi um, whether if they had had better numbers, if that would be more associated with reoccurrence. I think it's another potential research to do are the ones that we know that have multiple calculi in their bladder and the owners can't afford a cystotomy. We pull the urinary catheter. What is their rate of reoccurrence versus um, dissolution? And that would probably need to be more of a prospective study to do appropriate follow-up. They did find that catheter size was not associated with recurrent UO nor was the difficulty of unblock or the amount of IV fluids given the continuation of IV fluids after removal of the urinary catheter. A shorter duration of catheterization though was associated with a higher probability of UO, but I'd mentioned this already. The difference in this was 24.5 hours and 26.5 hours. That is not a clinically significant amount. That is the difference of oops, I forgot to go and pull that urinary catheter before rounds versus after rounds. And so I I don't think clinically this matters. And when we quote this paper and we say that a shorter duration is worse for them, we really need to be looking at those numbers before we're making broad statements about this. Administration of any medication was not associated with UO, the type of diet, husbandry changes, none of those were. Okay, so moving forward, we're in 2014 now. This was a paper by Ostrowski and Cooper out of Ohio State. Um, This was actually a case report, but I think it has some good physiology behind it, so we're really going to review that more. But this was development of dialysis disequilibrium-like clinical signs during post-obstructive management of feline urethral obstruction. So dialysis disequilibrium syndrome is is, is the neurologic symptoms a varying severity that result from overly rapid decreases in the peripheral osmolarity during dialysis procedures. So it's when you are doing dialysis and you're just rocking it out, you decrease their BUN so fast that their osmolarity is going to decrease and they develop neurologic signs. The rapid decreases in blood osmolarities and cerebral edema develop due to the resulting gradient between the cerebral tissues and the blood, and this can then cause an increase in intracranial pressure. It's documented in cases with rapid decreases in BUN during dialysis, especially when initial values were markedly increased. And signs can really vary from things like a headache, vomiting, fatigue, and then you kind of escalate, and things like seizures, dilamentation, cardiac arrhythmias, a little smattering of death can be in there as well. The theories of pathogenesis are not. Clear cut. It's multifactorial and poorly understood, which was my old resident's favorite thing because it means it's very hard to test. But it is fairly poorly understood. There is a. It is predicated by the presence of a hyperosmolar state and the development of a gradient between the cerebral tissues and the blood, followed by rapid reduction in plasma osmolarity. So you get this intracellular shift in extracellular water the neuronal swelling occurs, you get an increase in your intracranial pressure and clinical signs of cerebral edema. So again, your brain gets used to having a BUN of 200, let's say, and then you drop it and your blood all of a sudden has a BUN of 20, that water is going to flow into the brain because it has a higher osmolarity and therefore you'll get cerebral edema. So there's two different theories. The first is called the reverse urea effect. This says that the main contributor to the osmolar gradient is urea. Urea is actually not typically considered an effective osmol, um, but as it gets really, really high, it can have a bigger role. So when you have increased urea in the neurons, they'll decrease the expression of urea transporters and increase the expression of aquaporins. Aquaporins are channels that allow just water to go through and they're controlled by ADH. As BUN rapidly decreases, urea will diffuse out of the neurons more slowly because of this decrease in urea transporters, while water can rapidly move in the intracellular space down the concentration gradient that's been created because of these aquaporins. This is supported by the demonstration of a slower diffusion of urea across the blood-brain barrier in comparison to water and the presence that, that of a blood-brain urea concentration gradient in experimental models. Studies have also shown that the neuronal urea concentration is enough to account for the neuronal water retention. When we think about this in terms of urinary obstruction, though, it's uncertain whether patients with urethral obstructions will have increases in urea long enough to have these changes to their urea transporters and the cellular remodeling that must occur. So the second theory is called the idiogenic osmol hypothesis. And this, um, we know that we have evidence of paradoxical CNS acidosis when there's an increase in arterial pH, but a fall in CSF and brain pH. Concurrent to this, there's an increase in the hydrogen ion, or sorry, concurrent to the increase in the hydrogen ion that is that acidosis. There's an increase in brain osmolarity that triggers an intracellular shift of water and then cerebral edema, edema when the blood osmolarity acutely decreases. This increase in the cellular accumulation of osmotically active organic acids, what we call idiogenic osmoles, causes the increased intracellular osmolarity. These idiogenic osmols can actually appear as early as four hours after an increase in osmolarity, so this could realistically be a cause in our urethral obstructions. Diagnosis of disequilibrium syndrome is one of exclusion. It's based on the predisposing clinical situation, development of characteristic neurologic signs, and signs can be... um, prevented by spreading initial treatments over multiple sessions in the terms of dialysis. It's less likely to be able to happen with a UO. It's most of the time nearly impossible to slow down how quickly that BUN is gonna drop. But what they recommend in the cases of this developing is that you administer an osmotic agent like mannitol or hypertonic saline. It has been reported in cats undergoing dialysis, about 38% in one study and eight percent died despite treatment. This is going to be less common in things like continuous renal replacement therapy as opposed to intermittent hemodialysis. Let's say we continue these pandemic ponderings for a long time and we talk about dialysis more. We'll talk about the difference between CRRT and IHD or intermittent hemodialysis. In dogs, it's also been shown. They can have dysphoria, dyspnea, vocalizing, and they can see swollen neurons and glial cells, as well as edema in the white and gray matter. So this is a case report. You know, there's a ton of cats we treat all the time, these toxic UOs that have a really, really bad azotemia, and we drop them very quickly. And I don't know if we necessarily see dialysis disequilibrium syndrome, but it is something to consider when we're treating these guys, and we have acute onset of neurologic signs. Moving along to 2015, this paper was by Kelly Hall from University of Minnesota. She was a mentor of mine, so always happy to see these papers. This was outcome of male cats managed for urethral obstruction with decompressive cystocentesis and urinary catheterization. 47 cats, 2009 to 2012. Again, I had mentioned... At Minnesota, you really do a decompressive cysto on pretty much every animal, sorry, every cat that comes in for a UO, so this is pretty standard there. They found that one out of 32 of these cases had a positive culture on presentation. This obviously has nothing to do with the point of the paper, but I think it's always good to kind of collect these other bits of information of how infrequent an initial positive culture really is. And these they're getting from the decompressive cysto. so there is some thought that we may have an increase in some of our numbers for initial UTIs because we're collecting them through our UCath as opposed to a direct sterile sample from a decompressive cysto. They did find that there was decrease in detail um, in the abdomen in 56%. Two of the animals had an abdominal ultrasound and had fluid, but there was no evidence of leakage in those that had contrast studies done. Duration of catheterization there was 28 hours and a median length of hospitalization of 40 hours, and 91% of them survived to discharge. 7% that were discharged did represent within 72 hours with uh, recurrent UO, and one was rehospitalized. Moving on to more modern times of 2017, this was a paper by Ostrowski, Um, in JVAC. And this is retrospective evaluation of and risk factor analysis for presumed fluid overload in cats with urethral obstruction, 11 cases, 2002 to 2012. So this is an interesting paper because it is looking at more of um, the things that can happen to these guys and less of, yeah, we're going to have some that have a recurrence, um, but more of what can we do to make sure that these cases do well in hospital. In patients, fluid overload is defined as a positive fluid balance um, diagnosed either by a positive weight gain during hospitalization or by a positive fluid score. To do a fluid score, you really have to have a urinary catheter in place, check, check on these guys um, to measure urinary output. And you can calculate it with a lot of different equations which are not important. The development of Fluid overload usually occurs secondary to an oliguric or an anuric AKI, cardiac disease, or cardiorenal syndrome. And critically ill people have been found to have more of a difficulty in managing their overall fluid balance. Fluid fluid overload has been associated with adverse outcomes, especially with weight gain greater, greater than 10%, associated with an increase in mortality. So they, in this study, define that fluid overload as a positive fluid balance where the UOP exceeded the total IV fluids. i um, oh, sorry, UOP was exceeded by the total IV fluids administered. And their purpose was to describe patient characteristics, treatment, and outcome in cats. So they found that six years old was the median age. None had known heart disease prior to this, but one had, did have a heart murmur on presentation, five developed heart murmurs, and 91% of them developed a gallop. 64% were azotemic. They ended up finding underlying heart disease in 83%, HCM and HOCUM being the most common, and still 91% of them survived discharge. They did find that cost was significantly higher, almost three times higher in those that had fluid overload, and they had an increase in length of hospitalization of four days versus 1.8 days. And cats with fluid overload were more likely to have had a bolus with an odds ratio of five, five meaning they're they're five times more likely to have developed fluid overload in this population than if they had had a bolus versus not. In initial lower sodium, lower heart rates, and higher fluid overload score, they were more likely to have developed a murmur with an odds ratio of 4.5, or a gallop with an odds ratio of 75. So that's, that's pretty huge. The development of a gallop is really something in these guys, which should be triggering us to be very conservative. Think about our fluid plan uh, and be looking for signs of fluid overload, signs of fluid overload, including weight gain, pleural effusion, pulmonary edema, uh, inappropriate urine output, things like that. The initial fluid rate that they were on was actually not associated to just the bolus, the presence of a bolus. The median time of diagnosis of fluid overload was 39 hours. So the discussion is really that there's an increased risk when there's a decreased extratory ability. So uh, um, things like an increased volume load, overzealous fluids, bradycardia, hypothermia, and acidosis can all affect cardiovascular function. Uh, in addition to the altered renal functions, you can have intrinsic renal disease from the back pressure on the kidneys during a urinary obstruction. And all of those can be contributors to fluid overload. So it really is something that I feel like we see quite commonly in our urinary obstruction cats that get a lot of fluids and they don't have the ability to process it as we'd like. I think a lot of it is also, I can admit, we cause this by thinking that we know what they're going to do. So you have a cat, especially it's really azotemic and it's not producing appropriate urine. And so we bolus and we bolus it. We say, we just got to play catch up. We just have to play catch up and they never produce the amount of urine that we want. And you're kind of spinning your wheels trying to figure it out. And eventually they show other signs of fluid overload. And I know that we've done this. I distinctly remember a case that I've done this to fairly recently where I should have been thinking that there was something else wrong with the excretory ability of this animal that was making it not produce appropriate urine and not so much that I was just that behind on fluids. Um, Now, what are we gonna do to better decide that? Or what should we be doing to treat these guys? Is it really gonna be better to just get some flow of fluids? They need some Lasix or some mannitol. Mannitol is gonna decrease the cell swelling of the tubular cells and maybe allow better passage of urine. Or Lasix, which is a loop diuretic to just increase some of the excretion of water. Are these things gonna be what help us have appropriate urinary output? and not have us have to bolus them? Or is doing that, are we going to cause a stagnation of their azotemia? And, and I don't have the answers to these, um, but I think that it warrants more investigation and thought by a lot of us, namely by people that are more intelligent than me. Okay, 2018, there was a paper in JAVMA by SITES, and this is an evaluation of association, association between indwelling urethral catheter placement and risk of recurrent urethral obstruction in cats. This looked at really standard care versus the unblock and go. That doesn't totally read like that in the title, but that's what it is. Is how do cats that we do an unblock and go do? And this really was randomized or not randomized. It was those that couldn't do inpatient, they did an unblock and go. And so they found that 11% of inpatient and 31% of the outpatient had recurrence. This was a significant difference. It had an odds ratio of 3.7. So you were 3.7 times more likely to reobstruct if you had an unblock and go. These are important numbers when we're talking to clients. I really, I like these studies that give me information to have a better discussion with a client. It does not mean that your cat is going to reobstruct because you're doing an unblock and go but it gives them more to think about, about what could happen. You know, we don't want to prognosticate with this, but we want to educate our clientele a little bit better. Of the cats that developed recurrent UO, 95% of them did obstruct within one week, with a mean time of 2.2 days. So they might not reobstruct that same day, which is interesting, but they're probably gonna reobstruct within that first week. They did find that inpatients had with increasingly abnormal urine color at the time of catheter removal was associated with recurrence. And I really liked reading this because this is, you know, one of the big things that we tend to do at MedVet is, you know, our our exit strategies. What do we need to accomplish in order to pull that urinary catheter? We want to see that they are non-isotemic, they're producing good urine, but really that their urine looks nice and clear. We're writing this in our soaps. We're recording this. Like these are all really important things that we are doing to treat them and I like to see that that's supported by research and not just you know random decisions that we've made. They did not find any effect from age, body condition score, weight, temperature, any ClinPath variable whether they are on antibiotics, anti-inflammatories whether it was difficult to unblock, the time to unblock, the experience of the vet, the duration of catheterization. None of those had to do with um, whether or not they did well. The next paper is a 2019 paper out of that Journal, and this was association between increased body condition score, body weight, age, and breed with urethral obstruction in male cats. This really is a paper that was looking at, because body weight has always been looked at, you know, the fat orange cat is the one that obstructs, Um, but they hadn't really looked at body condition score, and so they wanted to look at that. This was a retrospective case control study, so it was case matched. You have one UO diagnosed and one that was there for another reason on the same date of presentation it was matched breed age body condition score pedigree status were all looked at and what they found was that pedigree non-pedigree cats were more likely to have a urinary obstruction with an incidence rate ratio of 2.8 i had to look up what an incident incidence rate ratio is um but it's really that saying it's it's very similar to an odds ratio in the end so the more likely that you have it um the higher that's gonna be an incidence rate ratio of one the null value indicates that there's no difference in risk or rates between exposed and unexposed group um a risk ratio greater than one indicates that the risk in the exposed is greater than the risk of the unexposed and therefore an exposure is harmful. So this is an exposure, quote unquote, is that you are pedigreed. They did find though that a Burmese cats, I think it's Burmese, were less likely to have an obstruction. Their incidence rate ratio is 0.1. The incidence rate ratio, we're just gonna call that the IRR, increased with ages two to four. Um, These were the ages that had the higher incidence and then they declined after that with each additional year. So relative to a three-year-old cat, um, aged one year or lasting greater than 15 years, had an IRR of 0.5 or less. So those were more, quote-unquote, protected. The IRR did not vary significantly with body weight, but it did increase with body condition score. So body condition score on a continuous scale total effect, which it's just the way that they kind of divided these up, but they found that a higher body condition score had a higher IRR. Um, And when they looked at them categorically, they found that a BCS of seven had an IRR of 4.6, whereas a BCS of eight or nine had an IRR of 11.2. So they did find that BCS was associated with an increased rate. Um, This was not due just to a greater body weight though. So you could have the big giant cat that's actually you know, fit and trim versus the giant flub of a cat. The giant flub of a cat is probably gonna have a higher incidence. The next paper also out of 2019 is from J by Cooper from Ohio State. Looked at incidence of bacteria at presentation and resulting from urinary catheterization in feline urethral obstruction. This is really looking at how often we have urinary tract infections. So previously we've seen that UTIs can be anywhere from zero to 21%. The cutoffs of what they consider to be a UTI varied, but also whether they were getting it from the urinary catheter, they'd had previous antibiotics, they had an open or close, how long it was in, all of that was affecting these studies. So in this, they did the initial urine culture from a decompressive cysto. Um, and during the duration of hospitalization, they then did a urine culture every 24 hours from the urinary catheter, where they would clamp the line for 20 minutes. From the port, they would get a sample, they would discard a pre-sample, and then take a two mil sample and use that for culture. And then they did a final sample just prior to removal. They were all unblocked the same with polypropylene catheters and then had the same indwelling catheter placed UCath care was done, so they would remove the urine from the bag via a needle rather than disconnecting the bag. I think that they probably have different bags than we do, Um, but it's something to consider how often we're breaking the seal on this line. They'd wipe the collection set from the tip of the prefuse to the bag every eight hours, and um, the duration that the UCaths were left in was up to the discretion. But the median catheter time was 42 hours, they didn't have any positive cultures on presentation, and 13% subsequently had growth. All of those that did have growth did by 24 hours, um, and they all then had subsequent path- the same pathogens on their subsequent cultures. They mainly grew strep and pastorella. I think that this may be something that we need to be considering more is to do a urinary cath- urine culture at about 24 hours. So before we pull that, see if we can get some prelim growth, no growth. So we can start them on antibiotics before we pull that cath, because we are seeing a lot of our reobstructions are from a UTI. Okay, big moment. This is our last paper that I'm going to go through, also from 2019. And this is Effective Urinary Bladder Lavage on In-Hospital Recurrence of Urethral Obstructions and Durations of Urinary Catheter Retention and Hospitalization for Male Cats. JAVMA 2019. Um, they found that their in-hospital ur recurrence rate was 13 percent the median duration of the catheter in was 37 hours length of hospitalization was three days and what they would do is they would flush the urinary bladder when placing the urinary catheter what they found was that there was no difference in the flush group versus control group I think it makes us feel a lot better like we've done something we flushed out that bladder but uh, it doesn't actually really change so if it's affecting how long you have them under I probably wouldn't worry about it as much if you are so worried because it's so gross that it's going to clog, then for me, it's generally worth it to flush their bladder. Well, that is it for the first episode of Pandemic Ponderings. Might have to change that name because it's actually very hard for me to say. I also have no clue whether this is gonna save. I have no concept of how long this is or how I'm gonna publish it out to you guys. But if all of those things happen and you find this interesting in any way, please let me know or let me know kind of a format that you would rather do or other topics. This is selfishly for me and my own um, brain to stay active and not think about what's happening right now as far as COVID. Um, but really it's for all of you guys too, because I do like to have the opportunity to teach um, and we aren't going to have many rounds and opportunities right now in the hospital. Um, And I'd like to give you what other opportunities you have to learn. Um, So let me know if this is useful and what we can do better or different if I can make this actually work and get out to you guys. Thank you.